Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on this important discussion on cardiovascular disease and health equity. I'm Congresswoman Yvette D. Clark, and I co-chair the Racial Equity Work Group of the Energy and Commerce Committee, which raises awareness and finds solutions to racial inequity with my colleague, Congresswoman Robin Kelly, co-chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Health Brain Trust and vice chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Most people do not know that cardiovascular disease, also known as CVD, is the number one cause of death in the United States annually, causing more deaths than even cancer or car accidents. Black Americans are 30% more likely to die from CVD than non-Hispanic whites, 85% more likely than Hispanics, and over 130% more likely than Asian Americans. Medicare data shows us that over 9,200 people in my congressional district suffer with heart disease. The prevalence for heart disease in New York's 9th district was nearly 15%, yet the average for all congressional districts is lower at 11%. Overall in Brooklyn, of the nearly 213,000 Medicare beneficiaries, nearly 34,000 were treated for heart failure. Our Racial Equity Working Group's mission is to uncover causes and find solutions to what can often be non-obvious reasons why Black and Brown people are at a disadvantage compared to our white counterparts. That's why I'm speaking today along with my friends at the National Minority Quality Forum, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, the NFL Players Association, and Novartis. We are all working to find solutions to this issue of cardiovascular disease disparity. Mia, I look forward to learning from this thoughtful discussion and turn the program back over to you. Welcome to today's webinar series that's hosted by the National Minority Quality Forum. I'm Mia Keys. I serve as the 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 NMQF person who who comes and does all all of the things. I very much look forward to joining all conversations hosted by the work of NMQF. But I serve as the chief of staff to Congresswoman Robin Kelly, who's the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus Green Trust. And today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by uh, several phenomenal people who have vascular disease with cardiovascular disease. So I want to just start off by saying that we will be using a number of acronyms in today's conversation. I'll be very clear about making sure and I say what the acronyms mean and then we may go in and out in terms of real vascular disease or CVD is the number one cause of death in the United States annually, and it surpasses all types of cancers and unintended injuries. Black Americans in particular are 30% more likely to die from cardiovascular disease and are non-Hispanic whites, 85% more likely than uh, 
than Hispanics and over 130% more likely than Asian Americans also die from atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or ASCVD more frequently than uh, impacts nearly 30 million people here in the U.S. annually and it disproportionately particularly black Americans and American Indians and so today we will we will get into all of that and I also want to make sure that we're all very aware that certain populations in addition to historically being disproportionately impacted by CVD, um, they also have less access to high cholesterol treatments which makes the management of CVD quite, uh, really quite problematic and despite several or similar prevalence rates of high total cholesterol among blacks, Hispanics, and non-Hispanic whites, it's blacks in the U.S. and Hispanics in the U.S. who are significantly less likely to have the statin compared to whites in their... All right, I'm going to move my microphone close, closer, and if someone can give me an indication in the chat to whether or not it makes it better. Hearing every other third word. Okay, is this any better? Much better. Thank you so much. I appreciate the audience uh, engagement. In fact, audience, for you, for those of you who have questions throughout the duration of the program, please make sure to list your questions right here in the same place where you're putting your comments. That way I can see them. That way the panelists can see them. And speaking of our panelists today, who are going to help us to raise awareness and drive urgency around improving uh, ASCVD care as well as patient access, um, we have with us Dr. Sandra Brooks. She joins us as the Executive Vice President and Chief Community Health Equity Officer, as well as the, the Chief Medical Officer of, of the Center Division over at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, or rather the entire hospital series. I'm really very excited uh, for, for uh, Jefferson's presence today as a Philly girl, and, and so I'm, I'm very glad that you're joining us here today, Dr. Brooks. Thank you so very much. Thank you. And on her right, we have with us Mr. Joe Briggs. Joe joins us as the Public Policy Counsel for the National Football League Players Association, the NFLPA. He's also a professor at Georgetown University. And so he'll be talking to us about some of the work that NFLPA does to promote wellness and, and specifically around cardiovascular health. Thanks, Joe, for being here. We also have with us Dr. David Platt who is the VP, the Vice President and Head of Cardiovascular, Renal, and Met uh, Metabolism Medical Unit uh, over at the at Novartis under the U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs Unit. So we are very excited that Dr. Platt is joining us here today. And then last but certainly not least, we have with us the Indomitable President and, and Chief Medical Officer and C uh, CEO of the National Minority Equality Forum, Dr. Gary Puckrin. Thank you so much, Mia. Um, I'm not sure about Chief Medical Officer. So if you're coming that was to me, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> he's a CEO, rather. <laughs> but again, thank you so much. We really appreciate um, this opportunity, as always, to, to work with you and talk about some of the real challenges uh, that are occurring in our healthcare system. And today, obviously, we're going to talk to you about TVD, cardiovascular um, uh, disease, and its impact in minority communities. One of the things I've learned over the last 20 years uh, working in, uh, in this area 
it's always about the data. Um, the data tells us the story about where diseases are, um, um, who's treating people, and what are their outcomes looking like, and how can we make improvements. And so we at the National Minority Quality Forum, we start everything with the data to try to get a better understanding of where things are. And I want to give you a little sample. I'm going to ask um, uh, Keiko to pull up some slides, and I'm going to walk you through a little bit of the data that National Minority Quality Forum um, collects. This is only a small sample. Uh, we've been collecting, uh, you can go right to the beginning slide if you don't mind. Uh, we've been collecting health data now for over um, 20 years. Uh, we have a database of over 5 billion patient records. We collect data on about 160 million lives per year, covering well over 100,000 different conditions. Um, and we partner with that data. One of the things that, uh, again, I've, I've come to appreciate, as we work with patient advocacy groups and others, uh, they need the data. And um, uh, you know, if you're in the data long enough, you realize that certainly with cardiovascular disease, uh, there are no random cardiovascular hospitalizations. You can actually see them coming. Uh, and if you're really smart, um, you can intervene. And part of the challenge and, and issues that we have is that we're not intervening. Um, these numbers um, uh, that we're going to talk about today uh, have been going on for decades. Um, and the healthcare system is not getting any smarter uh, and it's not really intervening um, as it should be. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about heart failure, looking at Medicare fee-for-service. Um, in Kings County, uh, New York in 2018. Um, next slide. And so just quickly, uh, we call this the heart failure index, and, and those who uh, know us understand that we produce a lot of disease index, atrial fibrillation, obviously heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, uh, you name it, sickle cell. Um, we map all of those um, diseases because it's really down there at the community level where healthcare is delivered. Uh, and what we want to understand is, so what is the quality of care um, that's going on down at, um, at the community level? Um, what are patients' outcomes looking like? Um, and how do we make improvements? So in our data, we don't know who the individual patients are. We are more public health than we are uh, doing clinical medicine. Uh, and what we're trying to do is um, uh, find trends and patterns at the community level. So we have a unique identifier. Um, for each um, patient, uh, and then we have the physician's ID number. And so we can link patients to physicians and aggregate who's treating whom in, in um, uh, what um, uh, community. Uh, we know what they're being di diagnosed with. We know what their treatment looks like. Uh, we can add the social uh, factors and income and education quality. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to those formularies. Uh, you know, and anyone who's heard me talk about formularies know that we're pretty much against them, that they are really a kind of social determinant of health. Uh, they deny people access uh, to, to care, even though uh, disease intensity, ability to pay, and all those things don't matter in those uh, formularies, but we can have that argument on another day. And obviously we know the demographics, uh, characteristics of the uh, patient population. Next slide. So I'm just going to give you some uh, quick, now these are like top line numbers. Um, looking at Kings County Hospital, uh, Kings County, uh, uh, New York, uh, and so there on the fee for service side, there are about two, 212,000 uh, people uh, uh, in that uh, in that county who are on Medicare fee for service. About 33,000 of them, 16%, um, have um, cardiovascular, I mean heart disease, heart, heart failure disease. I'm sorry, which is above the national average of, of 11%. 
One of the things you, we, you should pay attention to is look at those hospitalization rates. So you have 33,000 people and they have 28,000 uh, 28, hospital visits. Um, speaking roughly about 84%. Now there's some frequent flyers in those numbers, but nonetheless, uh, we have a real high um, hospitalization rate. But even in that county, it's below the national average. The national average is 99. Think about that. Um, when you think about um, uh, heart failure and the way we are um, the way we are delivering care, and also it's not just that they're inpatient. Um, look at those ER rates. Um, you can quickly understand why I'm saying to you um, that we're not learning. So if I went back to 2017, 15, 16, we're going to see the same numbers, right? And that's the point. If we were learning, the numbers should be trending down, um, and and they're not. Next slide. Uh, and obviously, you know, we want to just go in and just um, show you that we can break out the numbers by uh, race and ethnicity. Um, and one of the things I find really interesting when I was looking at uh, uh, this data, um, if you look at the prevalence rate for whites in Kings County, it's 21%. African Americans are only 11%, and Hispanics are 11%. So you say, oh, that's not bad. Uh, but then go down and look at those hospitalization rates uh, for African Americans uh, and Hispanics. Uh, it tells you a lot about the quality of care um, that they are receiving. And, uh, and you look at the ER rates uh, between whites um, and blacks, and you see that um, African Americans are almost double uh, in terms of ER visits. And then finally, uh, it's, it's not even doesn't even make financial sense, right? Uh, because when you look at the numbers, you see uh, that uh, African Americans uh, are more costly uh, with heart failure um, than are than are whites. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the quality of care uh, that the system is giving. And, and then when I talk about quality of care, I'm not just talking about care in the moment. I'm talking about prevention. I'm talking about uh, the willingness to intervene early, uh, to slow down and, and trend down um, those numbers. And uh, I think later on um, you're going to hear of some ideas about how we can actually begin to bend these bend these numbers uh, and provide what we would argue uh, quality care for everyone. So anyway, as I said, it always starts with the data uh, because, um, you know, healthcare at the end of the day is all about the math. And if you're not following the math, you don't appreciate the math, uh, then you're going to live uh, with these kinds of, of numbers. Uh, so I know me has heard me say that many times. And I, I sure back to me. Yeah. And I still write it down every time you say it. I, I just wrote it down again. I appreciate that opening, Dr. Puckerin. I want to ask Dr. Platt to join the conversation and tell us a bit about his research and what Novartis is doing to work on a lot of the issues around cardiovascular disease. So, Dr. Platt, take it away. Thanks, Mia, and thanks for the opportunity to, to join this uh, very important discussion today. So I'm a pulmonary critical care physician by training. I've been on the industry side now for about 15 years. Um, I'm part of a large global pharmaceuticals company that has been very focused for many years on developing treatment innovations to address big unmet needs in cardiovascular disease. But as we've been watching the number of cardiovascular deaths in the U.S. going up um, and knowing that, like you said, this is the number one cause of death nationwide, we have come to the realization that we have a very big part to play in addressing this major healthcare challenge. So much so that we, as an organization, have actually um, we have set a very aspirational mission for ourselves to lead a generational decline in cardiovascular death in the U.S. And we've actually set metrics for ourselves 
um, to really assess how we're doing along that journey and how we're doing to along the way to achieve that mission. For example, our medical team has a target that we've set towards reducing cardiovascular death in the U.S. by 5% over the next five years. That's an incredibly aspirational goal. Um, we know that it's, it's going to be very difficult to get there. We think it's achievable, but the only way that we think we can we can do that and be part of the solution if we think beyond medicines alone, um, because that's not enough to tackle the, the health challenge of the size and scope that we're talking about here. And so we believe that it's actually going to take novel, non-traditional, transform, transformative population health collaborations um, to, to really move the needle in terms of achieving those goals. And so um, those kinds of, of uh, population sort of health collaborations have actually never been more important than I think right now. I don't think it's ever been more important to really um, establish collaborations across key healthcare stakeholders to really address cardiovascular disease in a bold way because we know that over the course of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we've uncovered deep health disparities in the U.S. And I, and I think those are disparities that have been here long before the pandemic, um, but they've really sort of been laid bare over the last two years. So as an organization, I think if we're going to be successful, we have to be able to address those issues. Um, we know that cardiovascular disease takes a disproportionate toll on minority enemies. We know that if you look at um, age-adjusted death rates, that blacks are 33% um, have a 33% higher cardiovascular death rate than the general U.S. population. Um, that probably has to do with an increased prevalence of risk factors like hypertension and diabetes and high cholesterol. Those things need to be carefully managed in these people. And, and we also know that blacks have a higher risk of having a heart attack in their lifetime. And in the one year following heart attacks in blacks, there's a significantly higher risk of rehospitalization. If you, and those are pretty stark um, disparities, but they actually become even more frank when you look at urban centers. So in Philadelphia, for example, um, if you look across the city, on average, the life expectancy gap between blacks and whites is about three and a half years. But if you hone in on specific zip codes, you can see life expectancy gaps that are much wider, as wide as 20 years. That's in communities that are just a few miles apart. So we've been asking ourselves and trying to answer the question of how can we as a pharmaceutical company partner with academic medicine and other organizations to promote health equity in a way that is at scale, and that's really important for us, but also in a way that is inclusive and representative of the communities that we're looking to serve. And those kinds of questions has actually led to a really exciting initiative that we've just kicked off um, a little over a month ago um, in Philadelphia with Jefferson Health called Closing the Gap. And this is a three-year joint population health collaboration with between Novartis and um, Thomas Jefferson University. Um, it's, uh, it's meant to really promote health equity by addressing disparities in cardiovascular disease across five high-risk zip codes in North and South Philadelphia, where that, those communities comprise about 200,000 people. 
The idea behind the initiative is that we're looking to address health at the social disparity level um, to really use the existing infrastructure in those communities, expand on it, strengthen it, in order to connect people with the healthcare that they need. And I know Dr. Brooks is going to go into this in, in way more detail in, in a few minutes, um, but if this is successful and, uh, and we get to the end of this initiative, our hope is that we're going to see a measurable impact and an improvement in these communities' capacity to provide healthcare, and as a result, be able to create sustainable change, be able to build awareness of cardiovascular risk factors, and also really drive down leading indicators of cardiovascular risk and outcomes. I think what it comes down to for us is how do we now take all of the focus that is on health and on disparities and everything that we've learned over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic and focus those efforts into addressing healthcare disparities at scale and ensure that people are able to benefit, all people are able to benefit from improved health, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their ethnicity, their geography, or their gender. Um, really excited to be part of this. I'm also really excited that you're here, Dr. Platt, and particularly to talk about the role of pharmaceutical companies as you're developing collaborative health, uh, health efforts, which I think is a great segue to go to Dr. Brooks and learn more about what's going on through the, throughout our, my hometown. You know? yeah, tell, us, tell us more about the collaborative. Thank you very much. It's uh, definitely an honor to be here. First, I want to say to Dr. Puckren, I think it takes the heart, the head, and the wallet, along with the mask. Okay, so I think that, you know, we could have, um, we've been looking at these statistics for a number of years, right? And we know that these health disparities did not take place by accident. We know you can lay, uh, overlay a map of where the redlining existed in the turn of the century and where historical uh, biases, institutional racism and exclusion has um, created uh, pockets and zip codes of impoverished communities that have been disinvested in over a number of years. And so what I do want to say as a black American is that I do not feel that our fate is predetermined by any measure, that everything that we're talking about today, although these statistics are certainly sobering, um, it is not, um, it does not have to be that way. And what we're doing at the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity really seeks to look upstream. So we recognize that based on all of these historical contextual factors that these wide disparities exist in specific zip codes and that's why we have focused our efforts on those zip codes and the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity really aims to um, radically collaborate across a variety of sectors. So what would it take for people to live healthier lives? It would take, um, particularly as we're talking about cardiovascular disease, right? It takes we need to look a little bit more upstream, right? So um, we need a balanced, people need to balance their stress, right? How can they live uh, if they've got violence in their communities and can't walk in a safe neighborhood? They need to be able to access healthy food and be able to live, have a balanced diet. They need to have some family support or support of their community, a sense of engagement. They need to have access to health care. 
um, a com- uh, and health, the type of health care where the person knows you, right? Not to see the same, per- uh, a different person every time where you feel like you have to start over. Um, they need to see people who are, when needed, a specialist who has really uh, been trained to identify maybe symptoms that don't necessarily match a specific um, group or is not needs more an elevated level of care. So at the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity um, and, and in partnership with Novartis and with our community partners, we're really taking a community asset level approach because although a lot of the communities we're talking about are distressed, they still have assets. They have people who are dedicated to those communities who are working very hard. And it's important for us to have the humility to say we don't have all the answers, we don't have all the expertise, but we're, we're in the position of collaborating deeply with those that are in the business of helping to uh, restore homes or those that are in the business of food delivery or those that are in the business of helping to provide uh, violence prevention. And we bring together our assets with those of Novartis and their expertise and their knowledge, and we're forming this amazing um, initiative called Closing the Gap, which is one of the, the a number of things that we're doing um, in addition to look at not only cardiovascular disease, but also um, uh, other chronic diseases and cancer. Brooks, thank you for that breakdown. And I'm going to personally be looking out for the work that Novartis and Jefferson is doing together. And don't be surprised if at the end of the mark that you, that you give us today, uh, NMQF will certainly hold you accountable. And, and I'll be asking questions too. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about some of those non, those traditional non-clinical issues that all of you have either alluded to or you've articulated well. And I want to bring Joe into the conversation. Mr. Briggs, tell us why the NFLPA, why, why, why is the Players Association really concerned with cardiovascular disease? How did that happen and what's ongoing? Well, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be on this panel. Uh, one of the main reasons why the NFL Players Association became cardiovascular disease from smaller, if whom are our fans, would all of these health disparities because they, uh, with almost 80% of the members only being African, very thin communities in the zip about uh, over the, the previous portions of this program today, they see the, the very outcomes that everyone else saw them growing up, they saw them in their own households, and they even see them as they continue as they continue to um, matriculate through their not only college careers, but also professional careers. Many of them, when they come to the National Football League, have asked the NFL Players Association, as well as uh, the NFL and our business partner, to come up with programs so that they can go back to those communities and help improve those health disparities that they've seen. Uh, we've seen a number of those programs kind of play out, uh, some of them on the national level, including the NFL Players Association uh, support for Fueled Up to Play 60, as well as uh, not only the Play 60 programming that you'll see around the school um, and other big sporting events that we have throughout the course of the year. Um, in addition to that, the NFL Players Association itself has also uh, put together a program to help our players uh, put together not only summer camps but also summer programs in the offseason that would allow the NFL players themselves to go back directly into the community and partner with local hospitals to educate uh, about not only cardiovascular disease but other health disparities as well, uh, including things like um, programs that would include uh, 
scholarships and grants to allow players and people who could not participate otherwise because they couldn't afford to participate in those programs to come into those programs and settings, not only meet the NFL players, but also make sure that they have an understanding of how the health uh, and being mindful of their health as a youth will help them if they have an aspiration to become an NFL player someday. My hope is that everyone who wants to have that dream play out in their life would have that dream play out in their life because they're healthy, because they learn from our players themselves. Right, and, and, and what role models they continue to be, even beyond younger age. So thank you so very much for, for being here. We're going to make sure uh, to uh, really draw out your perspective here because I think the, what you're talking about is the continuum, the age continuum, the, the life course, right? When Unfortunately, a lot of times when we have conversations around CBD, we start in adulthood. And so I appreciate the fact that FLPA is focusing on the life course with younger people. I want to pivot back to you. So a number of things that you said were really quite, um, you, you can see my little scribblings here. Um, you know, they're, they're, you're always, you're always bringing, bringing us to talk about the numbers, and I appreciate what you pointed out, Dr. Brooks, about ensuring that we're talking, when we're talking numbers, we're talking budget as well. Uh, you, you said talking about the wallet. Right. Oh, yes, no doubt about it. Political will as well as the heart that moves that you know the stories move hearts and minds for sure and I, I'm wondering with all the data because NMQF has all kinds of data how do you help for organizations to really draw those data down into 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 metrics that they can actually consume and deliberately deliver to their the constituents um, and, and then also you know how can you ensure that those data are actually used to infuse health equity at every juncture? Well, thank you, Mia. You know, um, uh, you know, healthcare is almost like flying an airplane, right? Um, you got to believe in the instruments, and you got to believe in the numbers um, uh, that you're looking at, um, and you use those um, to, to guide you. So we partner a lot with patient advocacy organizations um, because they may not have the data. Uh, they have the commitment and will, and uh, they, they're uh, working um, at the community level. Uh, they're talking with people um, who uh, who need their care and help. Uh, and what we try to do is, is bring the numbers and help them understand. We also use those numbers to do quality improvement programs uh, with practices. So um, um, Laura Lee Hall um, uh, in our group uh, does quality improvement programs with physicians around the country. Uh, uh, looking at um, the numbers in their practice and helping them with things like vaccines and how to improve diabetes care. Uh, and sometimes, you know, uh, physicians are busy, particularly those in, in private practice, and they may not see the numbers. They may not uh, understand, or even more importantly, have comparisons. And so what we try to do is help them understand um, the, the comparative of numbers. We also use those numbers up on the Hill. So when we go talk to a member of Congress, uh, we like to tell them what's going on in their district. Sometimes they don't know what's going on in their district, uh, and they have a very important role to play. Uh, we see them as the trustees uh, for the Medicare and Medicaid program, uh, and those of us who live in Washington know that if you ain't advocating, you ain't getting. And so uh, we want to make sure that uh, we advocate with them uh, and help them out uh, by, by sharing the numbers. We also use those numbers in, in, in research. Uh, we publish a lot. Uh, we uh, do clinical research. Um, so everything we do is really spinning around uh, the numbers. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, um, as, we, as we look deeply at these numbers, 
we realize that we have to do a lot of reimagining in our healthcare system, um, that the status quo is just not good enough. Uh, and um, it, it challenges us if we're going to deal with issues of health equity. Uh, that's why I'm excited about what Novartis is saying. I don't hear a lot of people saying, I'm going to improve something by 5% over a period of time. Uh, that's a bold statement and commitment. Uh, it takes a lot of work um, to get there. And so, uh, you know, we, we'd love to see that. And I, I would suggest that we all gather around and see if we can make that happen because those are, those are big-time numbers they're talking about. Big-time numbers, big-time overall, and big-time dollars. And, and also, Dr. Platt, it looked like you were going to chime in, and that's good because I wanted to, to ask you a specific question on that. You mentioned radical, both you and Dr. Brooks, radical, uh, transformative partnerships that have that are novel. You know, why now? Why this work? Why is the collaborative so unique? And how did you find one another to, to make this impact on society? I think when... when partners get together who are committed to addressing the root causes of disparities, you can make a big impact on society, including, I think, communities that are experiencing inequities. So, you know, in, in the partnership with, uh, that we talked about with Dr. Brooks and, and Jefferson, you're very lucky, lucky that we have great partners and committed partners. Um, and I think that's critical because um, I, we probably coming out of the, the pandemic and in the, in the post-pandemic world that we're going to be moving forward in, I think we can't escape the reality that there is no single healthcare entity that's fully equipped to address all of the multifaceted issues that contribute to social determinants of health and all of the, the gaps and vascular outcomes that we see across populations. So it's really through these types of transformative, non-traditional partnerships that I think we can really accelerate things in, in the right direction. And, you know, when I think about what the, you know, good, maybe the potentially good thing that's come out of the pandemic is that it has accelerated novel partnerships and new technologies in healthcare. You know, we've seen new digital health, health companies that have introduced innovations to help monitor um, health conditions better, um, to connect vulnerable populations with healthcare resources that they really are, are in need of. Um, we've seen ride-sharing companies partnering directly with systems of care to, uh, to really m make a dent in helping patients overcome barriers that are very simple, like transportation. So getting to your medical appointments and your vaccine appointments. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that's been a, a real acceleration to things, and it tells me that there's a bright future ahead for these types of, of industry partnerships, public-private, big and small, that really can help address inequities in a sustainable way at scale to make meaningful change. And, you know, you're, I think Novartis is, is among the leaders in the pack in terms of pharmaceutical companies recognizing the power beyond, behind collaborative um, efforts there. And Dr. Brooks, I'm wondering from your perspective, can you, can you uh, just really elucidate what Dr. Platt is mentioning? Why is the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity so unique and why is this partnership? Thank you. Uh, you know, the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity was established in 2017 in recognition by the board and our senior leadership that uh, we have, while Philadelphia is rich in culture, rich in history, rich in academic institutions, we still have the 
largest, among the largest healthcare gaps, uh, which means something is not working. And that was even made more clear uh, with the pandemic. And so I think the unique nature of the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity helps to aim to reduce the silos. In other institutions, you may have to go to four to five different departments, have separate discussions to do what we're aiming to do. So we have deep connections in the community. We have, we're really fueled by philanthropy, uh, mixture of philanthropy, operational funds, grants, but we have a multidisciplinary group of people with whom we work to do a number of things, build capacity. And so we will do that through pipeline programs, through catalyst grants. We, we provide for our community partners that help them to amplify their work. Um, we are building a community health worker program, which we believe is going to be so pivotal. We have infrastructure, which is um, our Fraser Family Coalition, which is uh, situated in, in North Philadelphia. We have a, a, a Southeast, uh, our wellness center in South Philadelphia, which is really um, going to be a, a visible standing hub to allow us to execute a lot of our work and work with deeply with our partners. And we perform outreach health education screening in addition to advocating for effective health policy. So within, um, we like to think that we might have been the obvious choice for partnership, um, but it's not, it's, we recognize this is just the beginning and that in order to really uh, accomplish all that we need to do, we need to bring more partners to the table. So we're um, really very excited for this work because it gives us another, um, you know, platform to speak about how important it is. Speaking of platform, Joe, I want to I want to talk to you about the huge platform that the NFL Players Association has and uses to not only their own benefit but to the benefit of those who follow football. Talk to us about that work, and then I'm, I have another specific question for you. Certainly. Uh, as you know or may know, the, some of the top programs on television throughout the year, not just in the United States of America, but around the world, are football games. Uh, the Super Bowl itself is usually viewed by over 100 million people every year. And as such, that means that our players have a unique opportunity to talk to people about any and everything that we want to talk to them about. So we encourage our members to use that platform to talk about health disparities. Uh, one of the ways they do that is, again, through the Play 60 program, but also behind the scenes there are a number of events that happen not only during the Super Bowl week itself, but also during the course of the season where we uh, try to address these health disparities by using the microphone and the platform when we have it. We're in the month of October right now. Um, the way that the NFL and our members have, and actually it was driven by our members, uh, one of our members specifically pushed forward uh, a breast cancer awareness as a main issue that the NFL would take on. Uh, that then multiplied into the Crucial Catch campaign where we're now addressing health disparities in other cancers, not just breast cancer, but all cancers during the month of October as well. Um, those are ways that we have used our platform, our members have used their platform, and will continue to use their platform. Uh, again, you know, it's interesting when you talk about the collaboration between uh, the two people that are sitting beside me, because a number of our players have also reached out in their community to try to find those unique and interesting uh, platforms to, to, to collaborate with as well. 
One way that has happened is a number of former players are going into the healthcare field themselves by getting a master's degree after their careers are over and working in public health because they see those disparities and they see how those disparities can be affected by using their influence in the community to encourage people to come into the hospital systems that are already existing in their community. I know one of the members of the 40 Under 40 that was honored by NMQF uh, was a former football player who is now the CEO of a hospital system in Chicago. Uh, these are things that people don't see behind the scenes, but part of the platform that we have, allowing them to earn the living that they are earning, and then allowing them to go after their careers over into fields that they really are passionate about, because we provided them information during their career about those things that could be helped in their community to help them bridge those gaps. So you segued into part of my next question. What are the resources that NFLPA provides former former players in order to really help to burgeon their other interests and commitments? Sure. Well, I'll start with current players. Right? We have a system in place that allows outside partners to come into the NFL Players Association and learn about the community foundations that our players have started on their own. About 35%, maybe even 40% now of our players start a foundation when they get into the National Football League because they become passionate about some issue in their local community. Many of those have in the off-season uh, special events, including football camps. And when most people think about those football camps, they think kids out in the field throwing footballs around. But what they don't see and what we see uh, is usually there's also an educational component for the parents of those kids. Right? We've done everything from voter registration to also conversations about health disparities, where we talk to them, when we bring in doctors, when we bring in physicians to talk to them about how their parents can make sure that they're improving their health so that they can be around not only so, so they can see junior play peewee football, but also so they can be around for when the kid gets to the NFL and they are now hosting the camp themselves. Additional resources are uh, partnerships with people like the National Dairy Council. Uh, I mentioned Play 60 earlier, but fueled up the Play 60 which is an extension of that program, allows our NFL players to go out into elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools to talk about the, the um, health value of a proper diet and how that proper diet mixed with proper, uh, proper exercise for at least 60 minutes a day can not only improve your cardiovascular health, but also your overall health outcomes as well. So we've done that over a, a period of uh, the last 20 uh, plus years where players themselves have partnered with the Gen Youth Foundation to find ways to insert themselves into conversations about health, health disparities, and also improvements of health outcomes. You know, it's, it's nothing short of amazing. I mean, the NFL, we all know, does not always is not always glorified in the media one way or the other, right? And, of course, because we are having a conversation about health inequities and health disparities, the impact of racism is quite real, and I really appreciate uh, your presence. I'm going to, that was a segue to a question I'm going to ask you later on, because I do want to pivot and talk about, uh, about the power of platforms, Dr. Pucker, and, and specifically ask you questions on social media. Now, you and I just last Friday, was it last Friday or the Friday before? Friday before, time flies. We were having a conversation on the significance of social media and what NMQF is doing uh, in terms of your, your partnerships, your bold partnerships with social media platforms. Can you tell us more about that and the connection to CVD as well as COVID in the, in the context of COVID? So um, I, I, I start off with a confession. I was a Luddite when it came to uh, uh, social media, didn't understand it, didn't participate in it. Uh, and then COVID happened. Uh, and it, it really came out of some outreach from Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Karen Bass and 
uh, John Clyburn and uh, Seawall and Benny Thompson, uh, they were um, looking at their communities and uh, the virus was, was wreaking havoc and hospitalizations and, and uh, mortality. Uh, and they brought us together with some of the federally qualified health clinics in their community and community-based organizations. And as we started to talk to them, uh, what we were hearing is that there was a lot of disinformation and unfiltered uh, content coming into the community, uh, but they didn't have uh, the wherewithal uh, to address social media, uh, to, to push back, uh, to drown out uh, some of the noise that was really affecting people's health. It wasn't just uh, the vaccine. Um, there was, uh, uh, you know, in the Asian community, it was violence. Uh, 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 the Hmong people thought that uh, vaccines were there to kill them. I mean, it was, a, it's, it was really just a lot of, of real disinformation. Some of it not even national. You know, when you get on the Internet, it's, it's international. So there were people uh, abroad mucking around in the community. And so um, we decided that what we should do is build a platform. We call it AI HealthNet. Uh, not formally released yet, but we can talk about it a little bit. Uh, and what we did was we, we brought all of those community-based organizations and CBOs. Right now we have 47 of them on the platform. It's like a Facebook platform. Each one of them um, has, a, has their own webpage. Uh, and then um, there's another 100 that we're about to bring on. And then what we do is, so they have their page, and then um, we partner with those who have important content to deliver to the community. Uh, and we, uh, we call them content microsites. Um, it's not a full-blown web page with lots of like WebMD, lots and lots of stuff. Um, it's talking about one specific idea uh, that we're trying to get across. We did a lot of work, in, obviously, in the vaccine, the monoclonal antibodies, something like that. Um, uh, that could be a real abstraction uh, to the people in community. And we use those trusted voices uh, to get the word out. And, and in the background, uh, we had a team that was, was doing all of the analytics, um, uh, uh, social media analytics, to, to build audiences, to, to help them uh, reach uh, uh, folks in the community. And, you know, I have to walk away and say, um, I, I've been, I'm, I'm a convert. I, I, I get social media now. Um, sometimes we have a million people um, sitting online. Uh, we did a program in, in New York City uh, with um, kids, um, uh, teenagers, um, talking about the vaccine. And what we were hearing is some of their parents didn't want them to get vaccinated. And so we had to um, you know, work through that with them and, and folks in the community. Uh, and so there's a real opportunity um, to learn a lot. I know, um, you know social media gets, gets a lot of bad news, uh, and rightly so. But there's some opportunity here. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, Novartis is, you know, uh, talking about uh, reducing cardiovascular deaths by 5%. Hey, let's, let's, let's spread the word. Let's, let's figure out what, what, what do we all need to do to make that happen. Let's not leave them out there on an iceberg by themselves. Uh, you know, let's, let's rally community. So um, I, I think that's our future. Um, we need to take social media and bend it uh, to real purposes and align it with some of the things that we're trying to do uh, and really help educate our communities about um, really some of the wonderful innovations um, that are out there that are not getting um, the kind of notice that they should get. Whether they be the platforms themselves or the actual people, which brings me to you, Dr. Brooks. You mentioned earlier the, um, 
that you're building a community health worker pipeline, right, through a lot of the work that Jefferson is doing. Can you tell us who are those community health workers and how is their work relevant? Uh, how are you locating them? Um, and how is, how is all of that coming together through the Jefferson Novartis Closing the Gap Partnership? Dr. Pl oh, oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, well, community health workers could also be called community health partners or lay health navigators. Uh, they can come to this work from a variety of fields. Uh, they could be people new to employment or people who've had a previous career, people who typically have a passion for their community, are grounded in the community, and really recognize that there is, um, uh, they want to serve. Um, uh, in an employed way, <laughs> and so uh, so what um, what they typically serve as a bridge between the community and and a health entity, and so in uh, a lot of instances they may be deployed to help with um, uh, substance abuse counseling or uh, um, healthy food navigation or help to do a social determinants of health screening and help navigate people to varying resources. They may help to um, work with individuals to help them make sure that they get their medicine. Um, we also conduct a number of screenings that might be in churches or public places, so they'll help us um, work with our community partners to make sure that everything's aligned and that we have um, everyone's aware of the event. Uh, what we're aiming to do is to not only uh, create the pipeline, but also create a, a, a formal way of uh, making sure that they get certified. There is a certification program in Pennsylvania. And ultimately, what we'd like to do is to develop a career ladder for community health workers and also, you know, advocate for them to have some form of reimbursement as being part of the healthcare team. Uh, ultimately, but in the short term, we want to make sure that they uh, to really measure the impact of those community health workers, not only on the work that they do in the community, but also on themselves, and develop a professional development network of community health workers, so um, so that they can uh, you know learn and grow and continue to have continuing education on that. You know, to the extent that um, you know. Folks in academic medicine may a lot of times feel that they have the answers. I think it really um, it humbles you to have someone who's from the community uh, reflect back to you what the perceptions of not you as an individual, but you as, a, as an entity might be. And it's important, I think, to have people from the community as part of the team so that you can be authentic in, in, in whatever endeavor you're aiming to accomplish. I couldn't agree more. It goes back to the trustworthiness of institutions and who they determine to be the trusted voices, as you mentioned, Dr. Puckern. Were you going to say something to that? Yeah, I, I just want to amplify on this point. Um, if anybody was looking at the last census in, in Texas, so 39% of the population in the state of Texas, which is a pretty big state, is white, and 39% um, are Hispanic, and I think it's about uh, 12 or 16% are African Americans. That's your workforce, right? So this is not a nice-to-have conversation uh, when we're talking about uh, increasing the diversity of the workforce, the healthcare workforce. It's the future, uh, and so uh, we we have to build real pipelines into those communities because the next generation, 
the workforce has to be diverse, otherwise they're not going to have a healthcare workforce. Uh, and so, you know, uh, earlier on, this was a nice-to-have conversation to get diversity, but now I think it just makes business sense uh, that we have to do this. The fact that you're able to make the the conversation, the economic argument is significant, right? I think there's absolutely a moral imperative to ensure that our pipeline is representative of our communities, as Dr. Brooks mentioned, but then also there are serious economic and infrastructural implications of, of not employing uh, people and, and bringing the representativeness into the fold, which is why I think what Novartis is, is doing is, is, is so really very timely. And I'm wondering, Dr. Platt, if you can tell us more about the, the over, even beyond cardiovascular disease, what, what do the health equity and represent, representative efforts look like in Novartis today and, and, and in the enduring future? Thanks, man. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about the, uh, the Jefferson Initiative, which is, um, but, you know, that, that's really found, meant to address foundational issues, um, you know, health at a social determinants level, the things that prevent people from even being connected to the care that they need. At the same time, we have major gaps in terms of applying evidence-based medicine consistently across populations so that everybody is getting that, that is sort of uh, equitable and is going to actually improve outcomes. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, you mentioned atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ASCVD, major driver of cardiovascular deaths in the U.S. Most readily modifiable risk factor for that is bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol. And yet 80% of the people who have had an, a heart attack or an ischemic stroke, ASCVD events, are not at their guideline-directed bad cholesterol goals, despite actually being on therapy and despite aids of statins being available. So how do you move the needle there? Because that's going to be extremely important for, for creating that consistency of care. So we're very proud to have supported um, a new initiative that the American Heart Association has just kicked off, which is solely focused on improving outcomes in ASCVD patients by optimizing the overall care of these patients and applying implementation science across uh, six large health systems in the U.S. It's going to encompass about 40,000 patients, and it's really solely focused on consistently applying evidence-based therapy to reduce cardiovascular risk. There's a, another um, really interesting uh, research alliance that we are the founding partner of um, with six other health systems in the U.S. It's called the Cardio Health Alliance, coordinated by the Duke Clinical Research Institute, and it's a a research consortium that is solely focused on improving disease care pathways by really expediting the implementation of, of evidence therapy in practice. And so, again, that, that's the kind of effort that we believe is going to be very important to ensuring that we're applying therapies consistently across diverse populations. And so you don't, hopefully over time, we don't see these big gaps and have various conditions. Then I would say that the thing that we're probably most proud of in the last year is a collaboration that we announced earlier in the year with um, Morehouse School of Medicine and 26 other historically black colleges, universities, and, and schools of medicine, um, along with a couple of other key organizations, Coursera that provides a lot of online education, um, the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, um, the National um, Education, work together over 10 years and we've committed uh, investment, um, $13, uh, $7 million, 
um, over that over a course of time and, and more um, scholarships and grants and other things to co-create solutions that address health equity issues that have come out of just the racism that has uh, created a lot of these health inequities. So, um, you know, we talk about the fact that uh, we don't have very good representation in healthcare um, in minority populations. So, 13% of the population in the U.S. is black, 5% as physicians are black, and that 3% for cardiologists. So, a big focus of that initiative is to foster the development of 1,200 next generation leaders in healthcare that come from minority communities um, through scholarships and grants and internships um, to really improve the number of people that are, and get our, our healthcare providers to be representative of our general population. And that's going to be very important in ensuring that risk factors are recognized across minority populations and diverse populations. The other major component of it that I'm really excited about is um, we have a severe shortage of minorities represented in clinical trials. We create guidelines and, and we treat patients based on data from large clinical trials that don't really represent um, a lot of communities in, in the U.S. And so how do we tackle that in a bold way to make sure that when we make healthcare decisions, we're, we're making those decisions where healthcare providers are making those decisions for diverse populations based on best evidence? And so I, I, that's very exciting because that allows for you know, new investigators who look like the people that they're trying to enroll in trials, and it creates a virtuous circle where you create a data in patient, in relevant patient populations, apply that data to make good treatment decisions. I, I appreciate everything that you said. I have to pick on some things because I represent a member of Congress who is so very passionate about clinical trials representation. And so this, that's certainly um, something that is on um, Congress radar, at least through the Health Brain Trust. And that's something that more than likely I'll, I'll follow up with you offline and, and talk more about. I also have, a, have to give a shout out for two, to two institutions that I graduated. I, I went to school for a long time and on different, a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of you have on this, on this uh, panel for sure. Um, but, but two of the institutions from, um, from which I graduated, Cheney University is the first historically black university in the nation and Meharry Medical College and, and down in Nashville. And I owe much of my, not only my, my formal training, but also my appreciation for collaborations, uh, public and private, and across acad uh, academic institutions. But the recognition that um, investment is necessary in order to build out this very pipeline that you're mentioning. So thank you for bringing that up. I want to ask a question of all of you, and I want to start with Joe, put you on the hot box in the hot seat here, Joe. So, you know, it's interesting because COVID has, and then prior to COVID, but really COVID has introduced the, uh, the national consciousness to really hard conversations that I would not say that everyone is prepared for. Conversations around race and racism, but specifically racism, right? Conversations around um, the significance of representation, as you mentioned, and who's in power and who gets to, to, to decide who is in power and who wields it. The NFL has a history of, and I know that the NFL is separate from the NFLPA, but sports in general has a history of having to engage these hard issues, whether or not they're ready for it, right? And so I'm wondering if you can start us off in a conversation talking to us about how, through your platforms, 
the uh, the Players Association does approach these hard hard conversations, and not just around disparities, because you can have a conversation about differences all day, right? But to the to the extent that people don't understand Dr. Brooks' earlier point, which is um, disparities or or inequities are uh, are purposeful or they've been long-standing, right? That's something that young people need to know. And the same for 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 the two of you in, in clinical settings. Having hard conversations about race is not always welcome in a traditional clinical setting. So how how does that come, and, and specifically racism, the stresses associated with it, so how does that come across? And then, Dr. Bunker, and I'd like for you to, to tell us, you know, historically, um, all, all of your points. So we'll go from Joe to Drs. Brooks and Platt, and then uh, to Dr. Puckerin. Hard conversations time. So how do we have hard conversations? Um, one of the hard conversations... Specifically around structural racism. One of the reasons why we have to have that conversation with our players is because most of them, when their careers are over, they return to the same hometown that they left from. What they see is that there hasn't been much improvement over the time that they've spent earning a living as a football player through the time that they return. Now, since gentrification usually comes to bigger city centers, when they go back to their smaller hometowns, they don't see that same level of improvement of some of the things that may come as a result of gentrification. Primarily, that also applies to their healthcare systems. So now you have a former NFL player who was used to getting services at a certain level in a major city center because of his relationship to a professional sports team going back to a place where that sports team level of medical care isn't available to even his family members. The thing that always catches me when I think about the members that I serve, I'm always reminded that they're probably about 10 more families behind each player that's supported by the salary that they earn. Not just because they are helping to pay for bills for certain close family members, but there are also people on staff that work for the teams, work for the players directly, or work for the agents that work on behalf of those players. And many of them are also minorities and also live in these communities as well. So the players have to think through those tough, the tough subjects of structural racism not only because it directly affects their lives and the health care that they're able to receive, but the health care that their families are able to receive as well. And, and a thing that is probably um, something, that's, something that's well known to me, uh, something that may be less thought of to folks outside of the world that I exist in with these NFL players is that once they take the helmet off, they get behind the wheel of a car, they drive in those neighborhoods, most people don't know who they are. They can't distinguish them from another minority person who lives in that neighborhood who may be treated in a way that structural racism may provide uh, that may be less than stellar uh, if we are being candid, right? But I'm also reminded of the fact that um, who we celebrate in that continuum also becomes a part of the structural racism. Like, for instance, right, we hear a lot about former NFL players that do really well in finance or maybe even as uh, coaches, right? But they, uh, no one here could probably tell me who Jeremy Jarman is. Jeremy Jarman is a young man who finished his NFL career and became an RN, wanted to go serve his community as a registered nurse. Same with a young man named Nate Hughes, who came into the NFL thinking that he wouldn't have a long-term NFL career from an HBCU, Alcorn State University, um, but made sure that he finished his RN degree before he came into the NFL, kept his RN certification the entire time he was in the NFL, and then after he was done, went back to Mississippi, where he was from, 
and finished his medical degree and is now a doctor, right? No one's telling the stories of these guys that are actually thinking through structural racism, how they can use the, uh, I would almost say, venture capital that they earned during their NFL career to then sponsor themselves into another way that they can influence and not only change these systems, but also help all of the people around them. There are a number of players who have gone on to become doctors after their NFL career. One of the reasons why that's an available uh, option for them because the NFL Players Association has continued to negotiate for them to have educational benefits. After they get done with their playing career, they can go back to medical school. And that medical school can be paid for through scholarships earned as a part of them being NFL players. And then they go back to communities such as Myron Roll, who's now in Haiti serving refugees and also down in South Florida serving those populations that are able to immigrate to the United States of America. So they see those health disparities. They use the venture capital that they earn as NFL players to then go back and try to address them, some directly by becoming medical professionals and others indirectly by trying to figure out how they can become a better part of their community. I was, I was just trying to decide if I wanted to clap or snap. Yeah, thank you so much for, for uh, being here and, and telling their stories. Follow that, but I mean, that's powerful, I will say. Well, you know, you, you, the question was about having hard conversations, right? And so I think that um, in, not, in order not to walk around as a, a black person feeling angry all the time, I think you have to uh, decide when you need to call it out, um, how you can develop allies, um, when it's important, um, if you're a representative on a committee and you know there's a reason you're on that committee, you cannot be afraid to speak up. Um, and I think that it's you know also trying to lead by example. The team that I'm able to hire is a diverse team. And so that's an example. I can find talented people. Um, they exist. You know, and I think being willing to amplify the voices of others who perhaps have not had the platform, um, you know, and to uh, really, again, you know, you're not going to, uh, you know, have every opportunity to make a difference, but you have to keep trying. Say one example would be when we COVID, when the vaccine vaccine was scarce, um, and there were tears about who was actually going to be getting the vaccine first. Some of the initial um, guidance was based on age. Well, we've just had a discussion about how there's an age discrepancy in the African-American community. So if we have our guidance saying that 75 years and older, well, what percentage of African-Americans are going to be in that first group? A very, very small percentage. But who was dying from COVID-19? You know, so we had to have a very difficult conversation uh, with people who were about to let the engines start going. <laughs> And, you know, fortunately, through having discussions, providing data, you know, getting allies, we were able to make some accommodations so that we had a more equitable way of sending out those invitations and also recognizing that not everybody had access to an electronic ways of communicating with us and we had to develop another strategy. So I do think that, um, you know, you're, you have opportunities to have those hard conversations through everyday decision making and that's just as important as through um, having them in a philosophical way. Sound by in and of itself, you, you have the opportunity to have those conversations, those hard conversations during decision making. Yeah, I'm writing that down. 
and I, I'm attributing that to you. <laughs> Same question to you, Dr. Platt. Yeah, I, I'm going to put my clinical hat on it here and say that, you know, I, I think difficult conversations, in my experience, come down to practice and empathy. I, I think, you know, if I can come up with a, a good analog, I mean, difficult conversations, um, I'm a critical care physician by training, so end-of-life conversations are incredibly difficult and hard conversations to have with families and, and patients when they're able to. And the only way to get good at that is practice. I think about the number of hours that I had in medical school or the number of hours people have in medical school today practicing, having conversations, hard conversations about structural inequities and structural racism. I would imagine that it's just not enough. How do we prepare physicians of the future to be able to have hard conversations in practice? I think, you know, it, it's hard to separate that from... Or making people empathy. feel defensive. Sure. I think you can have those conversations in a way that kind of shows people um, how certain decision trees will result in a certain outcome unless you're very intentional about it. And I, I totally agree with that. I think it speaks to also the empathy side, right? If you're going to have a hard conversation, you need to be able to understand what another life is going through, what their life experience has been, how they got here, and, and how and why it's so important that you're in a position to really help see people through to, to a place or next level or whatever, you know, it is that you're having to have that difficult conversation. Um, it, it's something that I, I think we probably don't do enough practice of having hard conversations, and I think we probably need to do a better job of teaching empathy. Across. It's not in medical school curricula. Right, and then that's that's also problematic, right? Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Dr. Puckren. You know, um, uh, I often speak in certainly we at the National Minority Quality Forum <clears throat> talk about the legacy health system, and I, I want to unpack that a, a little bit um, for you. Um, speak, so you have to understand the African American experience. If you go back to 1776, um, we were left out. Right? And um, people talk about the American experiment and perfecting that American experiment. Well, that's what African Americans committed themselves to. The Phyllis Wheatleys, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Frederick Douglasses, uh, um, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, I mean, we can name them, um, who spent generations um, talking about the perfection of the American experiment. And that perfection was. Uh, to recognize the equality of all people, that everyone had access and was fairly treated in the in the society. The the, the current American healthcare system was formed during a period of inequalities. If you go back to the 1940s when uh, we started the employer-based healthcare system, um, America rejected in the 19th century having government health insurance, and we didn't start to get health insurance really until the 1940s with the employer-based system. Minority populations, African-American populations were left out of that. Hospitals were segregated. Medical societies were, were segregated. Um, all of that came down as a consequence of, of, of Medicare when government health insurance uh, came aboard. The government demanded that uh, everyone, um, at least coming through the front door, um, uh, got, got treated equally. But a lot of the inequities that were formed during that period did not get challenged. Uh, and so part of the African-American experience now, this inequality, these inequities that we're talking about, 
is, again, the African-American community pushing for that perfection, pushing forward to say that everybody who comes through the front door of the healthcare system has to get quality health care. Um, it, it's not just that we're saying African-Americans need to get it. Uh, we're saying everybody um, has to get it. And, 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 and it's, that is what the African-American community has been doing since 1776, is having this conversation that throughout the society, um, uh, everyone needs to be treated equally uh, and get uh, access, uh, in this case, uh, to, uh, to appropriate medicine. And, and, it, and it really is a challenge. I mean, if you, um, I look at the American healthcare system right now, and it's, it's all about managing financial risk, right? I mean, CMMI, it's financial risk. CBO scoring, financial risk. Pay for performance, fine. I mean, go down the list. But what that means is that some people don't get um, when, you, when you say that uh, we're going to uh, provide this as the metrics for who gets healthcare and who, and who does not. Uh, and so I think understanding where the African-American community is coming from and why this particular moment is so very important, because for the first time, America is hearing that there are these inequities in healthcare, and organizations and companies like Novartis are stepping up and saying, okay, we need to do something about that. That's a profoundly important uh, that we, we should not walk away from not understanding how important that statement is in the context of American history. And we, it would behoove us to make sure that we do contextualize ourselves in history as we're considering present novel radical in, in interventions. Yeah, you know, I'm all, I'm, I'm all for that, Dr. Parkin. Thank you for that. So I want to be sensitive to time, and there are some questions that audience members submitted uh, prior, and so I want to give voice to a number of those. And then for the panelists, if there are questions that I didn't answer, ask you and you want to answer, feel free to just start talking, okay? Uh, but I want to throw this first one to Dr. Platt. And Dr. Platt, you have to walk me through some of these words, because to your point about practice, I don't use these words in my, in my daily practice. So can you discuss the implication of hereditary amyloidosis due to mutations in the transthreatin gene and specifically attributed to the V1221 variant? That was, that was pretty good. That was pretty good? Did I, did I do okay? In my head, I was practicing. Yeah, okay. All right. And I, it's a really specific question. That's a very question. specific question, yes. But I, I think it speaks to everything that we're talking about today. So, you know, I think what's, a, what's underlying the question is the fact that if you are of African descent and you have severe heart failure, 10% of the time you'll have this genetic variant. And the treatment for it, which is a, car, a form of cardiac amyloidosis, is very different from treatment of general heart failure. So the importance is that clinicians, that healthcare providers recognize these things. How do you ensure that, that the healthcare community is going to recognize specific risk factors that apply to minority communities without really ensuring that we are enriching our healthcare provider community with minorities and people who are and diverse communities and diverse ways of thinking? Because the first step, I think, in being able to address a healthcare issue like this it and having it top of mind that these are the things you look for in people who are, um, you know, in different 
So I think uh, it's a really good question, but it's totally emblematic of everything that, that we're even though it, it is very specific. There's a follow-up question that says, what is the variant? Specifically, so, yeah. Yeah, so it, it affects the way that uh, transthyretin protein it, it folds, and if it's folding the right way, then it forms these very um, maladapted sort of sheets of proteins that build up in your heart and your organs and heart failure and, uh, and kidney. One of the things that, uh, that cardiologists need to be aware of and uh, if you're going to be able to treat them. Thank you to whoever asked that question. That was, a, that was quite an education for me in, in those two minutes. I appreciate that. Dr. Brooks, I have another question for you that comes from the audience. Um, how do we address healthcare information distribution and, and specifically health disparities for people who are, who are minoritized with meaningful steps? You've answered this in some ways. Right. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that what we found from uh, the, what we, we probably knew, but we found in stark relief during the pandemic was that we needed to do all of the above strategies. Um, but that one of the most effective strategies was working through trusted messengers. Um, if we had had already a community health worker workforce in place, uh, we probably would have been able to respond more quickly. Ultimately, on down the line, what we did was partner with um, the, the census workers who were then converted into community health workers to help train them to deliver messages. Um, and they went door to door in some cases. So in some cases, we, had, we recognized some communities were not using uh, traditional news media or new, uh, other social platforms that were using WeChat. So we had to use WeChat. We translated. We used um, telephone. We used video calls. We um, put out messages in multiple languages. Uh, we had surrogates, uh, you know, celebrities who helped us get the message out. Um, so I do think that uh, it's important to get the feedback of how whatever you're aiming to communicate is resonating with the community. And in some cases, we had to change some things. Um, because it wasn't resonating the way we, we felt or we weren't getting uh, the response that we thought we should get. So I do think it's important. This is always a constant effort, right, because marketing, if it's a large organization, sometimes, you know, there are a lot of rules that you need to use. You may not feel as nimble as you want to be, so you definitely have to be careful, but you really uh, need to listen to the voice of the community to make sure the message is being received to you telling us that. And um, I, I think that harkens back to something one of you said about using the existing infrastructure and how timely it was to, to also use census workers. I mean, the census was, that was all last year, essentially. So yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so I want, let me see, we've got a couple more minutes. And so I want to make sure that you all have time for strong closing remarks. And Joe, I'm going to start with you. My closing remarks will probably be brief. Uh, I would only say to you that I'm probably the least likely person to be on this panel, but I hope that you found some importance in the conversation about how you can use non-traditional folks to, to spread a message around healthcare, around cardiovascular disease, and also making sure that you use the influences. As Dr. Perkering said, um, 
the social media is one of the spaces that my members play well. Uh, using those non-traditional avenues, you can find advocates for things like how we can improve health outcomes and how we can make improvements on health disparities, including finding people to come fight with you when you're fighting to change the way that your health community looks. Thank you very much for having me, and please remember to watch as much football as you can. <laughs> I was going to ask you, can you, are you going to let us know your team, or is that like a... I grew up in Central Florida, so I'll say that I have a very close affinity to a Central Florida-based football team, oh, but in every football contest, I cheer for all the players to end up with no injuries so that they don't crowd the healthcare systems that we have. Oh, that was a very nice answer, Joe. Stand apropos. up and do some jumping jacks when you're cheering. Right. <laughs> Dr. Platt, any closing remarks from you, sir? Yeah, thanks, Brianne. Thanks, everybody. I, you know, I, I think um, this kind of a conversation, there's so many different issues that we tackle, but it, it's a really stark reminder to me that the number one healthcare issue that I think we're all going to be dealing with coming out of the pandemic is cardiovascular disease. It's the number one cause of death going into the pandemic. It's going to be the number one cause of death for the foreseeable future as the pandemic subsides. And we want to be part of the solution to that challenge. And we think that the way to do it is to continue to partner with key stakeholders across the healthcare system, across the healthcare ecosystem, to really make meaningful change when it comes to addressing health inequities, to be able to move the needle on cardiovascular death like we talked about, um, and do it at scale in a way that's equitable and, uh, and leads to sustained change. And we know we're going to have to partner with local communities and other organizations that have already established trust on the ground. Um, but we believe it, it's achievable, and, uh, and this is where we're investing, and we think um, uh, this is the only way that we're going to get to a point where all people can benefit from being connected to the care they need, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their ethnicity, their gender, or their geography. So I, I think my biggest hope coming out of this kind of a conversation is that we really spur on the next generation, the next step in, in partnerships and enthusiasm for addressing these issues in a way that is meaningful and is, is really going to have the impact that we're looking for. Thank you, Dr. Platt. Dr. Brooks. Well, I guess I would um, say in addition to all of the above um, that we really need to take the, the long view there's no quick fix. Uh, it took decades, in some cases hundreds of years, as we've heard in our history lesson of how some of the how these things have come to be. But we can start to dismantle it piece by piece through novel, radical collaboration, through sublimation of ego, and the amplification of voices in the community. And really by being the types of authentic leaders that we hope we are, but you know, I believe that having the community at the table helps us to stay that way. And we, we need to put resources to it. Resources and, and those individuals with power and influence uh, need to come on board. <laughs> you know, and so I think we're dedicated um, and we're really looking forward to our, our, our partnerships are existing and future partnerships. And so I think um, together, I'm, I'm, it's been a tough two years, but uh, I think we're, we remain optimistic. And I, I want to point out and emphasize that you said amplify the voices in the, in the, in the community and bring them to the table, not speak for the quote-unquote voiceless. Those are, those are very 
different. That was an intentional use of your language. Thank you for that, and, and good luck to both you and Jefferson and Dr. Platt, you and Novartis, and your and your closing the gap overall partnership, and 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 of course to the Philadelphia Collaborative for for Health Equity. Thank for you, sure. no doubt. Dr. Parker, and we started with you. I think it's appropriate to, to end with your closing remarks. Well, first of all, I want to thank Novartis and um, uh, 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 Joe and um, uh, the folks at Jefferson for doing something really important. It takes a village. Um, healthcare, people don't understand, healthcare is a deep collaboration. Um, uh, down there at the local community is where that collaboration um, plays out. Um, you know, the, the, the supply line, we, we, we saw what happens with the supply line uh, with COVID when that breaks down, you know, what, what happens. Um, we, we can see that the importance of communications, uh, we can see the importance of policy, um, all of those things come together at the point of care. And part of what we're trying to do is protect that, that, that point of care to make sure that we are doing the best that we can uh, to make sure that every life is, is conserved to the best of our abilities uh, and no one is getting um, left left behind. Uh, and uh, I, I continue to think about that 5% that Novartis talks about because I'm telling you, 5% change in, in mortality is a big deal. I want you to understand that, right? 5% is, is no easy task. If you think about all of the pieces of the puzzle, that have to come together at the community level to save those lives. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a really um, tremendous deal. And so um, uh, they'll need partners. Uh, and uh, I certainly hope that those who are listening and certainly those in the room, uh, certainly NMQF, will do whatever it can uh, uh, to do that. Because certainly in the African-American community, cardiovascular disease is a killer. It's the number one killer in our community. So if somebody comes in and says, well, we can, we can stop 5% of that, I'm saying yes, because as soon as they do that, I'm going to say, let's get on to the next 10% uh, and, and, um, and, and really make this happen. The 21st century is about healthcare. I, I know people may be confused about it, but it is really about healthcare. Um, the, the amount of innovation that's occurring is spectacular. If you look back at earlier generations, they would pray for the kinds of things that we can do. One, one of the things I do that um, I, 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 I like black and white films. I grew up when there were only three channels on TV, so excuse me, I love black and white films. Um, look at the hospital scene in the 1940s and 50s of, of the hospital, the bed, right? It was a bedpan, and that was the end of the technology, right? There, there was no technology, right? And now, I mean, think about what we're doing here, um, and uh, what we what we should be saying is the ball, the stick that we want to pass on to the next generation doesn't look like anything that we got, right? We want to cure cardiovascular disease. We don't want you fooling around with cardiovascular disease in 2050, we want to move on to the next to the next challenge. So I'm excited. I, I really am. I think, uh, I'm, you know, I realize that, you know, we live in a, in a constant barrage of noise and probably some troubling news along the way. Uh, but, man, we are clever. We are learning some really important things. 
and I'm excited and uh, when um, companies like Novartis step forward with some leadership and say that uh, we can do this and I think uh, we should all um, get behind them and, and not um, sit in the back seat and um, say well we knew they couldn't do it but we didn't do it the best we could uh, to make it happen so again I want to thank you and Mia as always, uh, she has a future in, in broadcast. Um, it's coming. I know that. I'm sorry, Congressman Kelly. I know you're going to be upset with me when, when right. you she find will out. Be very upset. when the chief of staff goes on. But mm-hmm. that's that's kind of how it goes. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for being here, Dr. Sandra Brooks, who joins us as the Executive Vice President, the Chief Community Health Equity Officer, and the Chief Medical Officer of the Center City Division of the Thomas Jefferson University's Hospitals, University Hospitals in Philadelphia. Thank you so much for being here. Indeed. Mr. Joe Briggs, who comes to join, uh, who joins us as the Public Policy Council over at the National Football League Players Association, as well as a, a professor at Georgetown University. Your classes must be riveting, so I imagine that your, your students, you should share, share this with your students if you haven't told them about this conversation yet. Yeah, I, I bet, I bet. Dr. David Platt, who joins us as the Vice President and Head of Cardiovascular, Renal, and Metabolism Medical Unit of, of the U.S. Clinical Development Medical Affairs Team over at Novartis. Thank you. And of course, Dr. Gary Puckerin, who serves as the President and CEO of the National Minority Quality Forum, your hosting platform for today. And finally, I'm Mia Keys. Thank you so very much for tuning in. And I am going to get back to my day job. And this is Nora and Brandon, by the way, <laughs> from Novartis. Nora from Novartis and Brandon from, uh, from NMQF. Thank you, everybody. If you have additional questions, please make certain to send them to, um, to the whiz of NMQF, Keiko, some, uh, Purnell, who's in the corner. You can't see her, but they'll be sure to get to your questions um, in, in the future. And then otherwise, I hope you t- uh, tune into future conversations hosted by the NMQF. Have a great day.